As we continue in our study on the fundamentals of forgiveness, today I would like to please invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Now you know that we've been here already in this study, more than once even, but I ask you to please look down again to verse 18 and following. As some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And you remember the account that uh, the place where Jesus was teaching was packed. And they couldn't get in the doors because of all the people. So they climbed up on the roof and they lowered the man down through the roof. They dug open the tiles and they lowered him down to the place where Jesus was sitting. And look what Jesus says. Seeing their faith, verse 20, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. We've looked at this text and we've made the point that Jesus came to forgive sins. It was far more important than the man's health. He came to forgive sins. But what I want you to see right now is the response of the Pharisees. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's what they were obviously saying to themselves and maybe muttering to someone next to them. Who can forgive sins but God? Now turn over a couple of pages to Luke chapter 7 as we visit again an account that we have already looked at concerning the forgiveness of our Lord. As in verse 36 of chapter 7, one of the Pharisees requested him to dine with him, and he entered into his home. And while he was there, verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, was this woman who the Pharisee called a Sinner, And we made the point that she was obviously a known sinner, likely a woman of the night, as we sometimes say. But she knew she needed to be forgiven. She came to Jesus. Jesus then goes on to tell the parable of the two debtors, the one who owed little and the one who owed much. He asked the Pharisee whom would love more, and he said the one who had been forgiven. Verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Once again, look at the response of the Pharisee. Those who were reclining at table with him, not just the Pharisee, but those who were there, began to say, and this is to themselves, who is this man? Man, who is this man who even forgives sins? And they said, who is this man? Because they knew, as we saw from chapter 5, only God can forgive sins. Who is this man? And they were grumbling and complaining and saying to themselves, who is this man? Who does he think he is? Forgiving sins. Only God can forgive sins. In both occasions, 
That's what these Pharisees were saying. Only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? Do you know, in reality, they were right? In both occasions, the Pharisees were absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. Only God is capable of forgiving sins. Think with me for a moment. Do you remember what we saw in the first part of this study that we spent many weeks dealing with called the essence of forgiveness, which is that we are all sinners. And we looked rather much in detail at the whole matter of what sin is. And sin, as we saw from 1 John 3, 4, is a violation of the law. The law of God. The moral law of God. Therefore, sin is against God. When you sin, it is against God, primarily. And even David himself said in Psalm 51, Against you, you only I have Sin. Sin is against God. And so since sin is against the thrice holy God, it is this God alone who can forgive the sin. Sin is against Him. So He is the only one who can forgive it. The audacity of the Church of Rome that thinks that you can go before some man with a collar on his uh, neck here that's turned around and he can somehow or other go like this, how dare they think that you can go before a man and have that man forgive your sins. Only God can forgive sins. This is the God who holds men accountable for their sin, and that is why we must go to Him for forgiveness. Now, we have embarked on the remedy for this sinful state, as we have now been looking at from the Scriptures the existence of forgiveness, where we saw from the Scriptures that God is depicted as a God who is willing to forgive sins. We called it God's alacrity to forgive sins. His willingness and His eagerness to forgive sins. We saw in the Old Testament that God is depicted as a God who is willing to forgive sins. We saw in the New Testament from Jesus' first Sermon on the Mount to His instructions to the disciples before He ascended back into heaven that He taught that we are to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The message of our Lord Jesus was the offer of forgiveness. The message and the teaching of Christ was that you may be forgiven of your sins. But now today, we turn from seeing the alacrity of God and of Christ to forgive sins to see His Authority to forgive sins. Still under the broad heading, the existence of forgiveness, we come today to Christ's authority to forgive sins. What gave Jesus the authority to say to 
that woman, your sins are forgiven. What gave Jesus the right to say to that paralyzed man who was lowered on the pallet before him, I forgive your sins. What gave him the right? What gave Jesus the authority to forgive sins? Now to answer this, beginning today, I want to embark on a crucial study within this series. It goes hand in hand with the series. It is essential to understanding how Jesus can forgive sins. But even beyond that, we're going to begin a look at what is commonly called the divinity of Christ as it is revealed in the scriptures. And it is vital, I say vital and indispensable to not only understanding how Jesus can forgive sins, but in this day in which we live, to fight against those who tirelessly, day by day, fight against this truth in the Scriptures. We live in a day when this doctrine is continually under attack by many people and by many sometimes subtle and diverse ways. There has been a gradual and perhaps even a rapid rise in cult and cult activities in our day. In almost every case, they deny the deity of Christ and the Trinity. I can't help but mention again the popularity of this one who is on the radio. People like to hear him talk about politics. Glenn Beck. And he's constantly putting himself out as saying, I am a Christian. I am saved. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I am saved. He is a Mormon. And Mormons do not believe in the deity of Christ. They are a cult. And those who are a part of that cult are not saved. No matter what they say, the definition of the Bible is clear. Christ is the divine Son of God, and if you don't believe that, whatever else you may believe, and whatever else you may be, you're not a Christian. And so there is this rise of acceptance, even among many so-called Christians in our day, of the Mormon cult that denies the deity of Christ. Same thing with the Russellites. Same thing with all of these, or many of these other cults. And of course, there are many world religions that deny the deity of Christ. Pagan religions are, is a more accurate term. Islam denies the deity of Christ. Islam denies the Trinity. And by the way, so do the Jews. Jews deny the deity of Christ. Jews deny the Trinity. And so there is this continued bashing of this doctrine, and it is vital and important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. I want you to know what the Bible teaches about Christ 
and his divinity. And as I say, it is imperative even to our own study right now regarding the forgiveness of sins. What gave him the right to forgive sins? And what gave him the right to forgive sins, as those Pharisees said, only God can forgive sins. They were right. And he was God. That's the whole point. So let's take uh, our Bibles at this time and begin to focus upon Christ's authority to forgive sins because he was divine God. We're going to look mostly in the New Testament. However, we'll begin in the Old Testament. I invite you to turn to those texts I read to you a little while ago from the book of Isaiah. So if you would please turn again to Isaiah and we'll start at Isaiah chapter 7. As we see according to the scriptures that he was promised to be God. The Messiah was promised to be God. Now let me just say as we begin this study that it is not going to be, I do not intend it to be an exhaustive study on the deity of Christ. That would take longer than this series has already taken. But in fact, I expect it to be more of a basic study on the deity of Christ. So I hope that some of you will not be so familiar with this that you will kind of nod out or zone out. Stick with us. It's good stuff. It's important that we understand this. It's important that we know this. It is my intention to show you from the Scriptures who Jesus was and why, therefore, He was able to forgive sins. And we're starting here by seeing that the Messiah was promised to be the Son of God. I, I said it's rapidly approaching Christmas time. Well, it's here. Verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Now there's two things I want for us to see from this text before we compare them to what we find in the New Testament. We find, first of all, that the Messiah was to be a child. A virgin will conceive and be with child, and that child was to be a boy. She will bear a son. So the Messiah was to be a male child. God said there would be this sign a son would be born to a virgin. And it's very, very important that the Messiah had to be born of a virgin, we know. That is the only way that he would not be with sin. The sin of Adam was not imputed to him because he was not born of the normal way with a man and a woman. It was a supernatural birth of a virgin. I can't go too much further into the necessity of the virgin birth, but the Messiah was to be born of a virgin and he was to be a man. Now, let me just say this. We are considering Jesus. We're considering how it is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And despite what some feminists say today and what some liberals say today, Jesus was a man. So he fits the first criteria. He was a man, and he was indeed the one born 
to Mary, the virgin. We'll look at that in the New Testament in a moment. But before we do, look at the second thing from this text. Not only was the Messiah to be a male child, the Messiah was to be God dwelling among men. Verse 14 says that the virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel in the Hebrew means God with us, or with us is God. That's what Emmanuel means. And there is a reason that she was to name the child Emmanuel. Because he would be God with us. God dwelling among men. Now, it doesn't say in the text here that that means God with us, but the language is clear in the Hebrew, and it does tell us this in Matthew. But the, uh, the language expresses the union of two natures, the divine and the human. So when he appears, this promised child, this male child, born to a virgin, was to be God among men, a man who is God. That's the prophecy from Isaiah. He was to be God among men. Now, I don't want to just put these verses out there and say that's what they mean. Or that's what it is. I don't like to do that. I don't like that when other preachers do that. What I want for you to do is see it. So turn with me now to Matthew chapter 1. Because I unashamedly believe that this is directly and completely fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. This prophecy from Isaiah is fulfilled in Christ. Chapter 1 of the Gospel of Matthew. Now the birth of this verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. What does that mean? Well, they had never had relations. They were never intimate. She, in other words, was a virgin. She was betrothed to Joseph, and as you may understand the Jewish culture of the day, a betrothal was an engagement, but it was more than our engagement. It was a complete, it was really part one of the marriage ceremony. It was part one of the cultural marriage. Part one, they were betrothed. Part two, the ceremony took place, and they were then to live together following that. But so this is in the first part, while they were betrothed to one another. Engaged plus, you might say. Engaged plus. But they had never had relations because that would have been inappropriate. So she was still a virgin, but she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is not meant to be an account of the uh, incarnation of Christ. I just want to deal mostly with who he was. So this is all true, and we'll discuss this in a couple of more months when we deal with the incarnation of Christ. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned 
to send her away secretly. That was the second option that he had. She actually could have been stoned or stoned to death for adultery. But the other option he had was to put her away secretly. She would go away and live in shame the rest of her life someplace else. And he said that's what he would do. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And you know what happens. The angel tells Joseph that the child is a holy child. And that, uh, in fact, we read that text. He said, The Lord appeared to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who was conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know that the quote is made right here of Isaiah in verse 23. This is spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated means God with us. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and they called his name Emmanuel. Jesus. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 14. It's clear. It's right here. That the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, why then did they name him Jesus? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever wonder why they named him Jesus? I skipped the verse, verse 21. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Because that's what the angel told him. The angel told him to name him Jesus. And you will find the same in the account of Luke. When Mary is visited by Gabriel, Gabriel the angel tells Mary that you will conceive a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now why did they name Jesus? him Jesus instead of Emmanuel because the angel told them to and the reason is that the name Jesus is a compound word from the Hebrew Yehoshua coming from two words Jehovah and to save Yasha Jehovah the great I am And to save, Yasha, it is the name Joshua. But it is from those two words, Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves his people. So the name Jesus is more, we like to say, Yahshua. Yahshua, that's Jesus. More from the Hebrew. And it means Jehovah saves or Jehovah is our salvation. So it retains the meaning of God among us and adds to it the one who has come to save his people from their sins. This is right in the middle of our study. To name him Jesus is naming him Jehovah saves his people from their sins. This is just what we're looking at. How are you saved from your sins? Well, major part of that is to be forgiven by Jehovah God. 
the one who comes to save his people from their sins. So we have both elements here from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 fulfilled in Jesus. Indeed, he was a boy. He was a male child. As promised in Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And that's what we have. And they named him Jesus. Jehovah saves his people from their sins. God among us, our Savior. When you name that name of Jesus, it is God among us, our Savior. This is the one who was born by that virgin in that, laid in that manger, Jesus, God among men, who came to save their sins. I don't want to leave this yet without considering what an amazing event that was. God left glory and came and dwelled among us. God among us as Savior. That's who Jesus was. He did not come for himself. He didn't need to come for himself. He came out of grace and mercy for us. Because we're the sinners. We're the ones he came to save. Jehovah. Here. To save his people from their sins. This is our Jesus. Now back to Isaiah. This time go to chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Not only was the Messiah. To be a son. Not only was the Messiah. To be God dwelling among men. The Messiah was to be mighty God. Isaiah chapter 9. And I actually want to back up and look at verse 1 here. But there will be more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he turned the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on He shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Starts off by talking about Galilee of the Gentiles. You know where that is? Well, that's where Jesus primarily did most of his ministry. Galilee of the Gentiles was, in fact, the place where Jesus gained so many of his followers. It was the place where he called most of his disciples. It was where he preached. It was where he healed. And so, Isaiah says in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Now indeed, there is an immediate fulfillment to this, to uh, the Jews and what was about to take place in their captivity and all of the things that were to come upon them and the hard things. But the future fulfillment and the, the real fulfillment came as even to that place of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness, who walked without the light of the gospel, who walked without the light even of Judaism and the law of God, they will see a great light. Who's that? The great light 
will be, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, will go to the Gentiles. He was not sent only to the Jews. That is a fallacy. And that was the problem that the Jews had. The Messiah is only coming to us. The Messiah is going to restore our kingdom. And they just couldn't get over the fact that Jesus came not to restore their kingdom, but to forgive sins. And not the sins of Jews only, but to the sins of all who will believe in him. That's why the Gospel of John says that God so loved the world that he gave his son. The world, not just the Jews. And so those who think that the Messiah was to come just for the Jews don't understand the scriptures. God sent him as a light even to the Gentiles. Now, who was this light to be? This is where we look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But right now, let's just look primarily at what he says when he says he will be mighty God. He will be mighty God. This Messiah, this promised child that he spoke of in chapter 7 is enhanced here in understanding as he increases the understanding of the prophecy and says that he will be a son who will be mighty God. That's profound. That is profound. He will be mighty God. Now, that child born to Mary, as we saw, was God with us. But here when he says mighty God, You have to think more of like what an Israelite or a Jew would think when they heard this prophecy. When they heard that the Messiah who was coming was to be mighty God, they would immediately think of their own history and their own life. What they had known and heard of passed down in all their Passovers and the Passovers that they kept and the times when the grandfathers would sit around and tell the grandchildren of the mighty deeds of God. And so they would think of the God of the Bible, the Creator God who came and delivered Israel from the hands of the Egyptians with all of those mighty plagues. You know, the Israelites owned that. Yeah, it was their history. That was their, their testimony that God came with a mighty outstretched arm and brought those plagues against the Egyptians and set their people free from the captivity of the land of the Egyptians. This was mighty God. God who is able to do miracles and deliver our people with a mighty outstretched arm. And then once they had left the nation of Egypt and were traveling out, they came to the Red Sea. Along comes the army of Pharaoh to again destroy them. And what happens? Our God, the 
mighty God parts the Red Sea. And the nation of Israel is able to pass through the Red Sea as on dry land. A mighty miracle. They own that. God did that for us. That's our God, the mighty God who parted the Red Sea. And then when the army of the Egyptians came into the sea following them, he closed it back over and destroyed them. That's our God. That's our God, right? I mean, that, that's what they would think. It's like today when people have all these sports teams. That's our team. Yeah, wow, they won. You know, big deal. This is God. This is their God. The mighty God who then proved many miracles to them in the wilderness wandering. The mighty God who established that great temple that Solomon built. Not to mention all the miracles that he did through Elijah and Elisha. This is our God. This is our God who fills the temple with his glory and shows the enemies of his people, that he is able to defeat them under the banner of King David. This is our God, the mighty God. And this is what the prophet is saying the Messiah will be. This mighty, miracle-performing God is going to be the Messiah. The mighty God of the Bible who did all these miracles is going to be the Messiah. And the greatest of all that they would think is that He is the God who created everything. This is the God who is mighty, who speaks into existence all things, and they begin to exist at His word. This is the mighty God. Not only was he their God in deliverance and all these things, but he is creator God. This is who the Messiah will be. And how do we know that this is Jesus? The child who was born to a virgin was to be this mighty God-man. Turn, please, first to John's Gospel, chapter 1. One. John's Gospel, chapter 1. You know, I really don't have a better way to have us understand these things than to compare Scripture with Scripture. I hope you don't grow weary from going back and forth. Because I want your eyeballs to see this for yourself. We'll look at the Old Testament. We'll look at the New Testament. We'll return to the Old Testament. I know it may seem like many to be a Bible study. I hope you do not grow weary of seeing that this is what God says. This is how God reveals himself. It's what we need to do. So here in John's Gospel, verse 1, chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing 
came into being that has come into being. He is creator God. This word is creator God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwells among us. This is John's account of the incarnation of Jesus. The God who created all things came and dwelled among us. Remember, that's his name. God among us. Jehovah among us to save his people. Yahshua. Jehovah among us to save his people. He is as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, mighty God, in that He indeed is Creator God. Creator of all the universe. Right there from the beginning. Look over to chapter 5. John chapter 5. As we see what our Lord Jesus said of Himself during his teaching. John chapter 5. Just have time. Look at verse 15, 17. We'll look at verse 17. But he answered them. My father is working until now. And I myself am working. For this reason therefore. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was also calling God his own father. Look at this. Making himself equal with God. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be mighty God. And Jesus came and performed miracles, which we'll see more of in this study. But for right now, performed these miracles and said that he was working as his father, making himself equal with God. Now, Glenn Beck may not understand that, and the Mormons may not understand that, but the Jews here got it. He was making himself equal with God. He was saying that he was divine, that he was mighty God. Look over a few pages at this time to chapter. Well, we'll go to chapter eight. One of my favorites. He was making himself equal with God. He said he was God. Now, I love this passage of scripture. It just really kind of knocked the Pharisees out. And Jesus was teaching them and The Jews answered and said to him in verse 48, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. See there, once again, making himself equal to the father. But he goes on, I do not seek my own glory or my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, He will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. You see how much 
the Jews were connected to the physical. It's the same thing we're going to see in our own Sunday school time. You say that if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. They were just connected to the physical and they didn't get the spiritual. Surely you are not as great or you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? That's the question. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So the Jew said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they knew exactly what that meant. Remember his name. Jehovah, with his people to save. What is Jehovah? Remember, I am. The great I am who I am. So this is a great I am declaration. He is boldly saying to them, I am. In other words, I'm God. Mighty God. And they knew it. They got it because they picked up stones to throw at him because he said, that he was God. Jesus claimed in this text before the, the disciples, before the scribes and the Pharisees to be the great I am. And indeed, we believe that he was. Jesus was the great I am. I've got two more I want to look at quickly. Look with me, if you would, please, now to chapter 10. Over a couple of pages or a page. John's Gospel, chapter 10. Look at verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. How do these cults get around that? Of course, many of them print their own Bibles to make them say whatever they want. But this is from the Hebrew and the Greek and the Greek and the Aramaic here. This is biblical. This is the Bible that God has supernaturally ordained for you to have on your laps if you have that kind of a version and not one of the versions from the Jehovah's Witnesses or something. It's a legitimate word of God. And God says, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. This is where we get the Trinity. Yes, the Bible teaches that God is one God. But he reveals himself as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And here we have Jesus the Son saying, I and the Father are one. How can that be? You tell me. Because we cannot explain it. But it is how God reveals Himself. In some of my reading and preparation for this, just last night or the night before, I was reading some who question, well, how can God, how can there be a Trinity? How can Jesus be divine? Somebody tried to give them all kinds of uh, answers and stuff like that, and it's all out there in the ethereal. And Yes, there are ways in which we can explain it, but the best way that I can explain it to you is that the same Bible that teaches that there is one God is the same Bible that teaches that He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God Three persons, distinct yet the same. That is what the Bible teaches, and that's why we believe it. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but it is verses like this that caused the church and have caused the church for centuries, for 2,000 years, to believe that there is a Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He sent the Son who is One with himself. One with the Father. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered, For a good work we do not stone you. Or yet they would have actually. They're lying. They would have stoned him. They tried to stone him for healing on the Sabbath. But for a good work, we would not stone you. But for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. That's who Jesus claimed to be. Either he was God, or he was a liar, or he was a madman. We believe what he said, that he and the Father are one. I'm just going to look at one other text to show that his disciples did get it. Look towards the very end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20. You remember Thomas? I don't like giving him the name Doubting Thomas, because Thomas was a good guy. Thomas gave his life for the Gospel. And Thomas was the one who, in John chapter 7, was quick to say, let us go back and die with him when he was going to go back to Jerusalem. Let us go back and die with him. Thomas had faith, but you got to believe, you got to understand that being told that someone has raised from the dead, that's hard stuff to believe. You know, we believe it. We've got the Bible. We've been taught this all our lives. Thomas didn't know that, though. He didn't get it yet. So if you want to call him Doubting Thomas, okay. But Doubting Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus first appeared to the disciples on the first Lord's Day, but he was on the second Lord's Day, verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And how does Thomas answer? He said, my Lord and my God. 
And what did Jesus say? No, 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 I'm not God. I'm just a man. Like the apostles did. That's not what he said. He commended him for his faith. People, you and I have a Savior. His name is Jesus. Yahshua. Jehovah with his people to save from their sins. His name is Jesus. We call him Jesus. And Jesus, according to his own testimony, is mighty God. Jesus is mighty God. And dare I say it already before I continue to prove my case, which I will come back and do again next week. How can this man forgive sins? Because he's God. He's the God man. He's mighty God among men. He is the all-powerful, mighty God. I'm going to show you that he proves this not only by his name and his birth, but what he did. What he did among men and who he was called by men. There's no question. There's no doubt. If you believe your Bibles, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. It takes a mighty, all-powerful God to forgive your sins. It takes a mighty, all-powerful God to raise you from the dead. The Creator God is required to recreate. It takes Creator God to raise you from the dead. This is your Savior. There's no way around these prophecies and these passages. Jesus, indeed, was and is mighty God. Now again, there are many people who say that, uh, oh, I believe God, I believe the Bible, I'm a Christian, but they deny the deity of Christ. People, that's not possible, because that is a different God. That is a different Jesus. If you, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you believe in a different Jesus. Therefore, by definition, you are not a follower of Christ. You are not a Christian. This is part of our faith. As I said a little while ago about the Jews, when you talk about God being the mighty God, they own that. That's our God. Well, you own Jesus. He's your God. He's my God. He's my Savior. I'm glad to be a part of His family. We believe God. We believe His Word. And we believe how He has revealed Himself to us as the triune God. And we believe that Jesus is divine. Amen? Next week we'll see more of this. Let's pray.